Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Building trust is absolutely critical to generating the political will and stakeholder buy-in we need to scale up carbon removal, or CDR. The challenge is that there are few, if any, trusted third-party systems to stand behind a carbon removal project's claims about tons removed, additionality, permanence, and a number of other factors important in ensuring high-quality carbon removal did in fact take place. Most of the certification and verification systems that exist today are built around avoidance-based carbon offsets, which have a whole host of their own problems around quality and trust. Unsatisfied with the state of current standards and recognizing the need to move quickly to solve this problem, Charm Industrial is charting a new path, building their own monitoring, reporting, and verification protocol with input from experts across the carbon removal sector. I wanted to speak to them to learn more about whether their approach has the potential to build trust in the broader carbon removal ecosystem. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Peter Reichardt. Peter is the CEO and co-founder at Charm Industrial, where they are developing novel carbon removal and renewable industrial syngas technology. Prior to Charm, Peter was CEO and co-founder at Segment, a software as a service customer data platform, which grew to 600 people before it was acquired by Twilio in 2020 for $3.2 billion. He previously studied aerospace engineering at MIT. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. So tell us more about Charm Industrial. What, what do you do? Yeah, so uh, Charm, we take biomass, so waste, agricultural residue, things like that. And we heat it up and cook it into what is effectively a barbecue sauce. And then we inject that barbecue sauce deep, deep, deep underground, way below the water table, thousands of feet down into old oil and gas reserves. So we're, we're putting oil back underground uh, in the form of barbecue sauce from waste biomass. I love the barbecue sauce, sauce analogy. I, I feel like you really nailed the, how do you describe this to someone who doesn't know a lot about carbon dioxide removal? I love it. That's great. Well, and it's even better than an analogy, it turns out, because barbecue sauce, if you look at the last ingredient, is liquid smoke. And liquid smoke is actually exactly what we make. It's pyrolysis oil. And yeah, what we make has the over, overwhelming, overpowering smell of barbecue sauce because it's, it's the, literally the, the taste ingredient. That's amazing. And, and recently we've heard a lot about direct air capture within carbon dioxide removal. That's been getting a lot of attention. What sets your process apart and how does it contribute to the overall carbon removal equation? Yeah. So, I mean, we're obviously going to need all of these things uh, to get to the 10 or 20 billion tons a year of removal that's necessary by 2050. But, you know, direct air capture is sort of a completely mechanical solution in the sense that a uh, completely engineered solution uh, in the sense that both the capture of the CO2 into some other form and the injection underground and all, all that is all uh, sort of engineered. What's a little different is that we get the capture for free, right? There's various crops and forests and so on that are that are growing and effectively doing the CO2 capture already. So we get to take advantage of all that foliage surface area, and all that photosynthesis that's already happening, and then take the waste residues there. And then we started introducing the engineered side of things, which is how do we convert that into a fluid that is perfect for storage? And uh, another interesting aspect of, or sort of comparison is that if you're doing direct air capture, you're generally injecting supercritical CO2 or CO2 dissolved in water, either into underground mineralization or supercritical CO2 into these old oil and gas layers where you need a, a cap rock because the supercritical CO2 is going to be buoyant. What's really cool about bio oil or this barbecue sauce that we eject is that it's very dense. 
it's actually denser than the fluid that we're ejecting into. And so that means that it sinks information and actually turns out it solidifies pretty quite quickly within days to weeks. So um, now, now that means that from a permanence perspective, it, it can be somewhat the gold standard because within a matter of days or weeks, you're, you're sinking and solidifying information. Um, so it, it differs kind of in those two respects. One is very, very, very clear paths to, to permanence and uh, no leakage and so on, and a sort of a hybrid between nature and, and engineered. And you recently announced that Charm has forged a new path for carbon removal companies to monitor, report, and verify their deliveries with a sufficient high quality bar. That's exciting news. But before we get into that, I want you to take some time to tell us, you know, as a carbon removal company, as someone who's steeped in this industry, what is broken about the current system for setting and verifying quality standards in carbon removal? Yeah, so maybe first we can even say like, what is MRV? Uh, MRV is is monitoring or measurement, reporting and verification. And the way I think about it, it's almost the product, right? Like the activity is that we put carbon underground, but the product is that we measure, report and verify that it is in fact going to stay there. And this is particularly important in carbon removal because with the physical product, like if you're making steel or something, you like, you show up at a loading dock with the truck and you make the delivery. Right. And someone sees the material come onto their, onto their loading dock. But with carbon removal, like you take the CO2 out of the atmosphere somewhere, but it's all in a big bulk aggregate, kind of hard to know that it happened or not. And so how you prove that you really truly delivered the thing is the product. And so I think it's extremely important to do monitoring, reporting and verification very well. However, as you mentioned, the existing ecosystem has, has not been doing it very well, actually, for the last, uh, for the last 20 years, really kind of since the offsets marketplace got started. You know, I think in our blog post, we linked to like 10 different articles that all were giving examples of times when supposedly verified offsets, uh, were like, obviously not, not true, right? Like, uh, I think the nature conservancy got really taken to task by, by Bloomberg here where you know, it's nature conservancy. They set aside land for the point of conserving nature, but then they were claiming in their offset filings that the forest was going to be cut down in the next five years if they weren't paid for the carbon offsets. So things like that, the Audubon got caught in a similar scheme and a timber CEO, the big timber CEO came out and said, I'm not sure why I'm getting paid for this because I haven't changed anything about my behavior, but Hey, it's an additional revenue stream. Someone should probably fix this. And there's like article after article after article about this, these kinds of issues, the Berkeley carbon, uh, uh, carbon trading, uh, study or, or, or team has dug into this and, you know, they go through issues of additionality, issues of leakage, issues of permanence. And I think in aggregate there, if you sort of multiply the numbers together, what you find is that like 97% of the carbon offsets that are sold basically have no impact on actual carbon in the atmosphere. And so that's the current state is that a lot of these projects are all getting verified by traditional registries, both monitored, reported, verified, lots of paperwork gets generated showing these things supposedly are doing something, but in fact, they're not. And so, you know, for us, I think to go get certified by that existing ecosystem, when our entire goal is like, that is the product and we want to be a hundred percent trustworthy in delivering that it's almost brand damage. I think to go be certified by, by that existing ecosystem that has not been showing us that they are doing a good job of actual certification for the last, uh, for the last 10, 20 years. 
So what implications do you think this existing system could have on scaling up carbon dioxide removal? Like why should individual corporate or government buyers care about this? Because carbon removal is a product that relies on, again, on the trust that the thing happened somewhere else, because it's not delivered to a loading dock somewhere, trust in the delivery of carbon removal is incredibly important for its continued scale up. Otherwise, it's unlikely that people will buy more of it over time. So I think that's, that's really the underlying thing. And because the existing verification bodies, I think in many cases, at least with carbon removal buyers, have already lost trust, I think it's really important that we do something different this time around with carbon removal than just go back to the same, same old verification bodies that haven't been delivering good results. And I really like the framing around MRV is the product. You know, I've seen some analyses that show just this like significant underinvestment in MRV in carbon removal. And I wonder if we frame it as, well, MRV is, is the product uh, that it might attract a bit more investment in order to step up these kind of quality standards that we want to see in, in CDR. And, and I think actually you, you, you don't encounter this until you actually try to make a delivery. Right. And there's not that many companies that have actually tried to make deliveries yet. As far as I know, it's basically Climeworks and Charm are the two that have tried to make deliveries or have made deliveries. And then you actually go back to a customer and you're like, we did it. And then the customer is like, uh, cool. <laughs> like, what now? And, you know, I, I think this was in a Politico article uh, where Dan Ratzhoff and, and the Stripe team were interviewed. And Politico was like, well, how did you, how did you know the Charm did it? Right. Because again, nothing shows up at a blowing dock. And, and uh, I think Nan was like, well, you know, we did a FaceTime with the injection well operator. <laughs> and then we reviewed some trucking manifests and stuff like that. But this is like a very unscalable way of verifying the carbon removal app. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is the product. And but you don't really realize that until the moment where you actually tell a customer that like, oh, I, I did the thing. And they're like, well, how do I know that you did the thing? Up until that point, it's all just in theory. Yeah, FaceTime to verify doesn't sound very scalable. Um, so, <laughs> no. so what is what is Charm Industrial doing differently on on MRV? Yeah, what we're doing is a little differently. Is trying to just make sure that we really develop all of this stuff transparently and a bit more in in kind of public, if you will. So, so that manifests in a, in a couple of different ways. One, the development of our proto protocol. Uh, which is how do we go about MRB? How do we go about the measurement? How do we go about the reporting? How do we go about the verification? How do we go about the carbon accounting? Like, what is it that we're actually going to account for? Uh, working out all the edge cases and issues there is something that we've been sort of working through a, an expanding set of uh, stakeholders, both on the NGO side, on the scientist side, et cetera, and trying to make sure that we just involve the broader community in, in that process, uh, especially, especially from the science community. To folks like Carbon Direct, folks like Eco Engineers, folks like yourselves, you know, folks like Carbon One Hundred and Eighty uh, in, in DC, ClearPath in DC, etc. So first, just kind of involving people in a, in a more public way, more transparent way as to what's going on. Hence the blog post that you saw. Uh, and then we'll we plan to roll out the the Proto Protocol. This is late July of, of twenty twenty two. Plan to roll out the Proto Protocol itself for even more people to get their eyes on it. Uh, and we also already, we already have the charm registry, which is a public part of the site where you can go and you can see in aggregate, how much tonnage we've delivered. You can see how that breaks down into, uh, individual deliveries of tonnage to each buyer. 
you can see when they purchased it, when it was delivered. And uh, we're really excited to be rolling out uh, a bunch more uh, detail around that as well as showing the full lifecycle analysis for each delivery, which varies per delivery, uh, depending on how far stuff was transported and so on. And so that will all be public. And so when I, the way I think about this is, uh, you know, maybe in the future, there's a really trusted third-party certifier or third-party verifier. But until then, you know, sunlight is the best uh, disinfectant. And we're just going to try to be extremely, extremely uh, transparent about what's happening in our deliveries so that so that people can effectively do their own audit and see that it's, it's really happening. I'm all for new approaches that can disrupt this existing kind of ecosystem that seems to not really be working. And it doesn't seem to work very well for traditional carbon offsets, let alone carbon removal. So it's really cool to see the innovation here. But is there a risk that this kind of just adds to the fragmentation that we're seeing around standards? You know, like, will companies have to reinvent the wheel like you have essentially done here in order to figure out, you know, monitoring, reporting, and verification? Uh, that's definitely possible. I think it's a little bit, maybe I draw a distinction first between certification and verification. Certification is the process where probably in this case, a group of scientists says, if you do this set of activities, it will in fact deliver a removal. And here's how you should calculate how much was removed. And then verification is effectively like an accounting audit where someone comes in and says, okay, well, you calculated it this in such a way, show me the full paper trail audit that shows me all the different things that you accounted for and did those physical activities happen the way they said you did. And does it actually add up to that? They're not checking the science of whether it's a removal, but they're checking the math and paper trail for whether it really happened. And verification is something that actually seems to be working reasonably well by that definition. Um, these are folks like eco-engineers and other accredited uh, verifiers for the California Resources Board and so on. Um, we know how to do audits, right? Audits work for the SEC, they work for financials. What we don't really know how to do is certification. The way this works in the financial world is the SEC and others like together produce the generally accepted accounting principles, GAAP, right? And they're like, here is the standard and you must comply with that in order to be a public company and to be in compliance with, with SEC regulation. The equivalent mandate from the top in a regulatory body does not exist. Today, you can see the SEC starting to play around with that direction and, and starting to think, see what that might look like uh, with some of their uh, recent like requests for comments and so on. So the, you know, ultimately, that's probably where it needs to come from. The question is, can we as an industry start to uh, align ourselves around a set of principles that the SEC could lean on in, in adopting something there? So maybe we need a sort of flowering of innovation and interesting approaches that then start to consolidate into something that an actual regulatory body can stamp as these are the generally accepted carbon accounting principles. As a, as a former auditor in a previous, previous life, I can definitely appreciate the gap accounting principles reference. And I think it makes a lot of sense. So thanks for breaking down the difference here for our listeners around certification and verification. You know, my, my view is that the optimal end state is kind of what you just described, that in order to kind of improve trust around carbon removal, you know, standards generally are established by financially disinterested experts. Can you say a bit more about how you see this, you know, this initiative you're taking to help us, helps us get to that end state? Yeah, I think this gets us a little closer to that end state in the sense that it gives a pathway or suggests a pathway 
takes the path first of just showing our work in terms of that development um, so that it's actually just followable in a public way by any other companies or any other people interested in the space. Like it can be a public case study of how these how these things get done as opposed to it happening in back rooms behind some behind some registry and receiving a back room check mark. So first of all, hopefully the publicness of the of of it becomes studyable um, or legible even to any of these other processes or or stakeholders. Second is hopefully it in, inspires other companies and frankly, I'm already seeing this uh, behind the scenes. I think there will be quite a few more uh, coming in, in future months, just judging from the response that we got from a lot of other companies in the space, where I believe that they will follow the same process of just starting to be public about how they're developing their their protocols. And as we then have more cases, then we can start to get a sense for what the commonalities and differences and varieties are that a actual broad regulation needs, needs to handle. Um, uh, or what a broad set of standards needs to handle. So hopefully by the development of a bunch of bottoms up things, it also gives us a set of things that we can work from and kind of abstracting out what the generally accepted principles are. And and it's been really cool to see Charm be really forward thinking about transparency from kind of the start of your registry and and even your kind of regular customer calls. And I think, you know, this takes things you know, much further, but it just seems like it's um, a principle that's deeply embedded in in the company. Would you say that's right? It is, and it is deeply embedded in, in the company. It's something that I think is very, very important to us. The carbon dioxide removal industry as a whole, I think, needs much better legibility and much better transparency than what came before if it's going to be successful and build trust. And so I would like to see every other carbon dioxide removal company publishing their deliveries in a public way that people can go and see and understand how and what and when and did it really did it really get delivered? Um, I I hope the fact that Charm has been you know one of the first two companies to actually sort of help set that tone and uh, for those for those that climbers who are listening, I hope that they will also pick up the mantle of, of uh, publishing publishing the deliveries. Yeah, I think I think transparency is absolutely critical to to scaling up CDR. I think. Um, you know, from a number of different angles, including price discovery and and also just crowding in more investment. You know, the, the more transparent we can be, the more uh, interest uh, investment in this space we'll, we'll kind of start to see. What else should we know about this initiative? Uh, I think the shift for us uh, in the next uh, in the next week or so towards actually showing the full lifecycle analysis is, is, to your point earlier, like a, a big step beyond even I guess the prior state of the art of just being transparent on it. So I'm very excited for that. And I'm very excited to see how far we can even take that, you know, like sure the life cycle analysis, but what more can we say about the operations that makes it clear that it actually happened uh, without getting too much into like things that, that don't need to be public, but about how our operations really truly work on the ground. But, uh, but how, how much transparency can we offer there? That's still sort of, uh, safe for us as a company, and I think we'll always be kind of questioning the limit there and seeing how far we can how far we can push that. Get yeah, transparency is best disinfectant for for trust and quality. Yeah, well, I wish you the best in in making that happen. How how can people learn more about this initiative and, and learn more about Charm? Yeah, uh, best way is to uh, go to charmindustrial.com and check out the blog uh, where we've written about this uh, already in terms of the high level process that we're taking as well as announced a bunch of deliveries and uh, coming shortly at the time of recording, uh, a bunch more about the proto protocol and the link to that document, as well as 
uh, check out the registry, which is linked to the top of the top of the page as well, so you can see all these public deliveries and see in the lifecycle analysis as well. That's great. Well, Peter, thank you so much for the time. Wish you all the best on this initiative. I hope it drives more transparency in the carbon removal space. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me.